0: And turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, going to be reading verses, uh, well, chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. I'll be reading today, as ordinarily, from the English Standard Version. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, that'll be on page, it says in there... 1,098 is where it begins, or uh, I'm sorry, page 855, and if the children's following, Jesus' Bible, page 1,098. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold from now on all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones first grade and under who'd like to go for children's worship, they can line up with Mr. Chris and Miss Brittany and our team and can head over there. If you're visiting with us, we just ask one parent goes and gets them signed up with our volunteers and staff. There are a lot of stereotypes out there about us Presbyterian Calvinists. Um, And while I'm sure that some of those stereotypes are unfair, uh, several of them fit pretty well. Uh, For example, some of our more charismatic brothers and sisters call us the frozen chosen um, after seeing our lack of movement and vigor in our worship. Um, I've often joked uh, myself that Presbyterians don't amen. You know, I grew up Baptist and they amen all the time. Instead, with Presbyterians, you get a hmm. If you get three hmms at the same time, you've basically set off a revival. Now, one stereotype that isn't as fair, in my opinion, is that Calvinists are a bunch of dour, puritanical killjoys who never smile and seem to find the wrath of God to be the most important doctrine in the Bible. I've met some of those Calvinists. I've met some of those Presbyterians, but I don't think it applies across the board. But even if it did... Even if it was true of us, we should be corrected on that point because you can't read far in scripture without stumbling over joy. Back in Psalm 89, which we saw several weeks ago now, Ethan sings about joy even when Jerusalem is in ruins. What did he say? He said, blessed are the people who know the festal shout. Who walk, O Yahweh, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. anybody know what a festal shout is? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a, a shout you make at a feast or at a party. It is a celebratory exclamation, right? What does it mean to exalt? to exalt means to rejoice. So what is Ethan saying? He's saying that the people who walk in the light of God's face, who live with God. People who know God, who have been saved by God, what do they have? Joy. They shout and they sing for joy. Ethan's statement could be considered a promise. That joy is granted to those who live in Yahweh's presence. But what is a little bit clear in Ethan's verse here is crystal clear in Galatians chapter 5. When Paul says this, The fruit of the Spirit is love Joy. He goes on peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. If you're a Christian, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. To use Ethan's language, you walk in the light of God's face. God is with you. You have been saved and you now live with God. And the indwelling Holy Spirit is committed to growing these things in you, including joy. Stated in another way, God is. Has promised joy to every follower of Jesus. Okay, but what's joy then? If he's promised it to me, what is joy? Well, first of all, Christian joy is not a permanent temperament or disposition. Christian joy is not a, a sunny disposition. You know, you, know, you know cheery people that have just always got a smile on their face. That's not necessarily what we mean when we say Christian joy. Christian joy is not always looking on the bright side of life, looking for the, the silver lining. It's, it's not a permanent cheeriness or an unassailable happy bliss. And so I don't want you to think that there's some kind of trick or some belief or some event that if you get a hold of it is going to make you always have a smile on your face. No, joy is different from that. Joy happens when we're rejoicing. Joy is a state we find ourselves when we are rejoicing. Here's a silly example. When I was a kid, we loved going to Opryland. Anybody here happen to go to Opryland in Nashville? All right, yeah, a few Tennesseans in the room, right? It's been replaced by the Opry Mills uh, Mall and Hotel now, but it was kind of a regional uh, theme park, Uh, and my favorite ride at Opryland was the Grizzly River Rampage. Uh, it was one of those big raft rides where you ride with like eight or nine other people and you're going through the rapids and there's like fake bears and stuff in there. And I would ride that thing over and over and over and over again. Why? Because when I was actively enjoying the ride, there was a thrill. But when I got off, the excitement faded. The satisfaction began to wear off. The enjoyment immediately began to fade. So what did I want to do? I wanted to ride it again. I wanted to rejoice in the ride. There was an activity that I was doing in order to experience that feeling. Now, that wasn't joy. I don't think what I was feeling on the Grizzly River Rampage was joy. But I'm trying to paint the picture that joy is not a passive state. That you somehow receive, it's imputed to you, and it's just there forever. No, joy is something we experience when we're rejoicing. It's the result of an action. When you rejoice, you experience joy. Joy, but let me be more specific. Joy happens when we're rejoicing in God and his work of salvation. To use Ethan's language again, when I'm exulting in the faithfulness of God that that he always keeps his promises, when the festal shout is on my lips and I'm celebrating God's saving work, that rejoicing gives me joy. To think of Paul in Galatians 5, what does the Holy Spirit do? How does he grow these various fruits in us? How do we get joy? The Holy Spirit directs us to rejoice in what Jesus has done. In today's text, we find Mary, the expectant mother of Jesus, rejoicing in God and in his work of salvation. When Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth and her pre-born son, John, are both filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth blesses Mary, John worships Jesus from the womb, and how does Mary respond? Look at verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, in God, the one who saves me. In Mary, we see Christian joy. What is the object of her rejoicing? She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And for the remainder of her song, all she does is sing about God's saving work. Listen to her now. She rejoices in God's salvation. Again, verse 47 through the end of her song. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. What has he done? 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary recognizes that the baby in her womb means salvation for her and for all of her people. That this child is going to turn the world upside down. This this child is going to cause the mighty to be brought low, for the sick to be healed, for the hungry to be filled. This child is salvation. So she rejoices in all that Jesus will accomplish. But here's something to consider. When Mary is singing... Has God's salvation been fully accomplished yet? No, thank you, June. June's dialed in. That's right. Jesus hadn't even been born yet. So have the mighty been brought down and the lowly lifted up? Partially, but not fully. Had the hungry been filled and the prideful rich been sent away empty? Mm, not really, not yet. Had Israel been helped and had God's promises been completely fulfilled? No, only in part. She was rejoicing in things that were already happening but had not yet come to full fruition. She's rejoicing while Rome is still in charge. She's rejoicing before Jesus has been born. She's rejoicing way before the resurrection. She's rejoicing in a salvation yet to be revealed. It's similar to Ethan back in Psalm 89. It's similar to Zechariah last week when he rejoiced in promises not yet fulfilled. What does that show us? Christian joy grows ordinarily by looking backward and forward in time as we rejoice in what God has done and will do to save his people, including us. Now, for those of you who've been here the last three weeks, that probably should slot right into our what we 've been talking about uh, you 've been tracking with us. You can probably pull this all together quickly and easily, but for the sake of those who haven 't, let me try to paint the picture. What does it mean to trust God? What does it mean to have faith? Faith is not a, a, a feeling. No faith looks backward. We look backward at scripture and we look at history to see the faithfulness of God. What has God done time and time and time again in scripture and throughout history? When you observe God's actions, we begin to learn something about his character and what is God like? If you look back at his actions, you'll find that he's trustworthy, that he is good. That he keeps his promises, that he is merciful and beautiful, that he is a saving God. Well, that backward-facing faith, when you turn it forward to the future, it becomes hope. If God has always acted this way, if he's always kept his promises, if he's always saved his people, if he's always been consistent, what do we expect for the future? That he will be the same. Yahweh God will be forever trustworthy. Yahweh God will always keep his promises. And what has God promised for the future? He's promised to save his people and to save the world. But consider this. Faith looks backward and hope looks forward. And what does that give us in the present? Joy. If you're rejoicing in what God has done and in what God will do, that gives us joy in the moment. And here's where that meets Ethan and Zachariah and you. Christian joy is an experience in the moment that rises above our present experiences, good or bad. So your life can be great. It can be awesome. You can have everything you want, and yet you don't have joy. And your life can be bad. Everything can look as bad as it possibly could get. While your joy remains unimpeded. How? Because joy, Christian joy, is not ultimately grounded in our present experience. Christian joy is grounded in the gospel. If we're rejoicing in what Jesus has done and in what Jesus will do, the present result is joy, a joy that rises above our pain, a joy that rises above our pleasures. We started this sermon series by talking about the difficulty of living in exile. Like Ethan, Zechariah, and Mary, we live in a land that is not our own. We live among a people who don't love God, who don't serve him. Uh, We live in a culture that's increasingly opposed to our Savior, to his message and his church. We live in Egypt. We live in Babylon. We live under the thumb of Rome. And you'd think that is a recipe for joylessness. But joy doesn't come from what's happening now. Ordinarily, it comes from what Christ has done and what Christ will do now. Granted, there are these beautiful moments in the present where we see God breaking in and doing a saving work. And those are remarkable moments. Like when your child first professes faith in Jesus. You see the Holy Spirit turn that light on in their hearts and they say they believe that Jesus is Lord, that he died for them and was raised from the dead. And that saving work of God in the moment, of course that brings you joy. Or that moment when you first believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Or when you come to the Lord's table and you partake of him in faith. These are moments in the present that give us joy. But it's all grounded in what Christ has done and what he will do. And the reality is, we don't always live on the mountaintop. We can't expect those kinds of moments every moment of every day. We live in exile. So when we feel weighed down with the reality of the world around us, when sickness and death and sin wreak havoc in our lives, when relationships are hard and when our own weakness seems so apparent, how can we have joy in those moments? Joy can be found in celebrating the past saving works of God in Scripture, history, and our lives. So Mary thinks back To God's faithfulness to Abraham and the fathers. Zechariah looked back to God's promise keeping to Abraham, Moses, and David, and even to himself. Ethan looked back on God's works in creation in Egypt. But what about you? What can you look backward to in order to find joy? Look to the cross. Look to the empty grave. Look to an ascended Savior seated at the right hand of the Father where his enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. And also look back to those moments of sweetness and closeness with God in your life. Remember those first moments when you believe the gospel. Remember the sweet forgiveness of God, the hope and joy that you felt in that first work of Christ in your heart. Remember what he has done in your life to set you free from sin's power, from sin's guilt, and from sin's shame. Remember how you have experienced his salvation already in part. If we remember these things, it will give us joy despite the difficulties of our lives. But then, joy can also be found in celebrating the salvation that lies ahead. In Psalm 89, Ethan didn't have a clear understanding of what salvation from exile was going to look like. All he knew was that God would be faithful. Zachariah and Mary, they had a clearer vision. They knew something of Jesus. But even then, they didn't know the whole story. Now, do you and I know exactly how the future is going to play out? No. But we have the whole New Testament, and we get these very rich pictures of what Christ is going to do when he returns. Our future salvation will happen when the resurrected Jesus comes back. And as we imagine that day through the lens of Scripture, our joy grows. What's going to happen on that day? How will we be saved? We saw it last week. There are three different aspects of the saving work that Jesus will accomplish on that day. He's going to save us spiritually. He's going to save us relationally. And he's going to save us politically and physically. Spiritually on that day, we're going to be set free from sin's power, guilt, and shame completely. We're even going to be set free from death as we are raised from the dead. We will live again in resurrected bodies made fully holy and righteous in the presence of God. You won't be tempted anymore. You won't fail anymore. I look forward to that day. That day is going to be wonderful for me. Maybe my sin is just way worse than yours but I promise you it, it it isn't. We're we're all totally depraved. What about the other two aspects of our future salvation? We save spiritually but also relationally. On that day we're going to live in perfect unity and community with each other and with God. We'll never feel unloved again. We'll never feel misunderstood again. We'll never feel alone. We will have perfect relationships, unspoiled by misunderstandings, unspoiled by sin. All alienation and dissension and conflict and division will be gone. We will have the relationships that we have always wanted on that day when Jesus comes back. That's the relational salvation we have to look forward to. And also there's a political and physical salvation. On that day, Jesus will reign unilaterally over all the earth. There will be no more nations. There will be no more kingdoms or power struggles or war or oppression. Jesus will be king and all will bow the knee to him. Satan will be no more. The world's systems will be no more. As the hymn says, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. We will live forever, resurrected from death on a perfect, recreated earth. That's our future. So when the present moment is hard, when the present makes it hard to rejoice, where do we look, we look not only to God's saving works in the past, but also to this vision of the future, to the salvation that we will experience in Christ. And meditating on God's saving work in the past and the future gives us joy in the moment. But here's the question. In your common practice, how do you ordinarily seek escape from the difficulties of life? When you feel the heaviness of life, where do you go for joy? What is your gut response as you're seeking escape from the difficulties of life? I'll give you a couple of moments to think on that and write down your answer. I'm going to do the same. I have a pen. Things, people, and activities that you just wrote down, unless you wrote Jesus in his saving work, are the things that are most liable to become an idol for you. And I imagine that, like me, you wrote down a lot of good things. Those are the things we've got to be particularly careful about. Our neighbors all around us who don't know the Lord, they're seeking joy at every turn. They are seeking satisfaction and joy in a hundred different people, activities, and things, even in good things. But any joy that is not grounded in God and his saving work through Jesus is something less than eternal joy. Megan and I were talking about this the other night. We were on our date. And I said, this is one of the reasons I struggle with Jesus' teaching. I believe what Jesus said. Where Jesus said, in heaven, we're no longer going to be married to one another anymore. That death is the end of the, the marital bond. And I said, that what, what, what that shows is that I am still tempted to love you more than I love Jesus, to, to, to long for your affection more than I long for Jesus's affection. And so any joy that is found in something other than Christ is a lesser joy, and it's, it's not an eternal joy. So let us not fall into the trap of Babylon, of seeking joy in the things of this life, Instead, may we seek joy in Christ. But consider this, joy is not reserved for rare moments. No, if it's a fruit of the Spirit, this joy is something we should want to live in as much as possible. Our whole life is to be one of looking back in faith, looking forward in hope, and rejoicing in God in the moment. So, while that might seem impossible or difficult, you might not even know where to start. Let me point you in the right direction. Christians, we have regular opportunities to embrace this joy, and here's how. First, in Sabbath, household, and individual worship, and in special seasons and feast days, like Advent and Christmas. Advent and Christmas are not commanded in Scripture, but worship is, so I'll, I'm going to lean into that one. Worship with God's people, what we're doing right now, worship in your home, or worship by yourself, reading the Scriptures, singing to the Lord, praying. These are places where we check our joy. These commands of God, along with these other special times later invented by the church, these are all opportunities to check our joy, to ask the question, Where's my joy coming from? Am I seeking it in the things of the world, or am I seeking it in the saving work of God through Jesus? The hope is not that we would have joy in fits and spurts on Sundays and in special days, but that joy will become a way of life for us, a life of always looking back at what Christ has done for us. It's always looking forward to what he will do so that we're rejoicing in the present, whether life feels good or bad. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And what's interesting about each of these fruits is that they're not just true of Christians— They're true of God himself. They're true of the Holy Spirit. We serve a God of joy. Do you remember what Paul said? That Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. When we rejoice in God our Savior, when we join Ethan, Zachariah, and Mary in their rejoicing, we are joining God in his rejoicing. He rejoices in what Christ has accomplished. He rejoices in our salvation. So brothers and sisters, I know we live in exile. I know it can be hard to see beyond the challenges and pain of this life. And some of you are dealing with great pain. But remember what our God has done. Remember what he has promised to do and rejoice in the salvation already accomplished and in the salvation yet to be revealed. Christian joy lifts our spirits despite momentary affliction, because it celebrates our faith and our hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not leaving us alone. In desperation, you sent your son that we might have joy, not an empty joy, but a joy that will last forever because Christ has done everything we need to save us spiritually, relationally, politically and physically he's done it in the past and he'll bring it to fruition in the future so father give us joy lord i pray for those here who are suffering i think especially of pat as lisa goes into hospice went into hospice this week lord we pray for our brother that he would have joy in what christ has done and what what christ will do for his bride lord for those others who are here who are suffering with sickness and with difficulty Help them to see beyond that to what you have done and will do, and give them joy, a joy that is beyond explanation because it's rooted in what Christ has done and will do. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.